if you walk into a boardroom, you know, a tr traditional meeting boardroom, business boardroom, and in the middle of it, you place a rubber duck, what's going to happen? It's going to spark creativity in the team. So I am addicted to those moments of high energy and intensity, like when a moment the spark comes, when an idea hits, you know, like the franticness of it. I guess some runners do it to get to that place, but I do it intellectually. I like to crack nuts. I don't know, that sounds funny to say, but when I say crack a nut, I mean, the, the essence of design is taking a um, problem or an issue or a challenge, deconstructing it, looking for interrelationships, and then putting it back together. So in, in a new context, a new framing, right? So the moment I crack that nut is the height of ecstasy, shall we say, in, in the spark. This is The Spark, a podcast about the mind at work. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and welcome back to The Spark. In this series, we're taking you on a journey of inspiration and discovery, as told by Philip's employees. Now, one of the key components of inspiration and discovery is exploration. Having the willingness to explore is what allows new innovation to occur. You could even say that exploration is the key to growth. Our guest today, Kurt, exemplifies the spirit of exploration. Kurt's a musician and even learned how to riff with some of the best, like jazz pioneer Stan Kenton. In this episode, we see where Kurt's journey took him when the gig was up. Well, hello. I'm Kurt Ward, and I am a... Strategic Design Director at Philips Design in the Netherlands. My father, by the way, was my best friend growing up. He was my idol, and, and that had good things and bad things about it. But um, he was into jazz, specifically uh, progressive jazz and, and Latin jazz, so Stan Kenton. And Stan Kenton played at the Brown... You remember the Brown Derbies? So in the Brown Derby in Norton, Ohio, was a, you know, basically it's a cabaret. And um, so you could have dinner there, but there was a huge stage and Stan Kenton was there. And we sat on the second table from the stage. And then there was intermission and there was the second half. And the people who were in front of me left because they were just there for dinner. So I moved up to that table and I'm sitting at the table by myself. My father bought a conga uh, drum, uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago. And so I fancied myself a conga player just because I, I loved music. So I was always playing on it. And so I'm sitting at this table and Stan Kenton calls me up to the stage and, and you know, more for entertainment reasons, you know, because it was youth and, you know, there's a kid there. So he asked me my name and all the typical things. And then he starts asking me about my favorite songs and I start rattling off all these songs. Now, mind you, I'm six and a half years old, right? So it must have been like a little performing monkey. And then he gets to this point, he says, so do you play any instrument? And I said, well, you know, yeah, I play congas. And then he, he asked me if I wanted to sit in. And of course I did, because I was a you know, little arrogant child. And I, he let me sit in. And from then on in, I played, uh, I, he let me sit in every time he come to Cleveland, probably 16, 17 times. It was like, like it was an obsession. Later on, when Stan died in, in 1979, um, that was no longer a venue, but we started going out to jazz clubs. And then, so I spent my entire childhood, almost every Friday night and Saturday night, playing in jazz clubs till 2 or 3 a.m., now, that might be called child abuse nowadays, but I loved it. Okay, 
My teacher, who was the uh, he was the, the main um, conga drummer for Stan Kenton at the time, his teacher was Patato Valdez. And if you know anything about Cuban music, Patato Valdez is like the godfather of congas in a way. I mean, he's the you know he's the supreme. So if you think about it from a genetic point of view, I am linked to Carlos Patato Valdez from Cuba, and uh, I love that. Because I, I, any way I can get away out of being a white male American from Midwest America is okay with me. <laughs> Jazz has always been about marching to a different kind of beat, flowing to where the inspiration leads you, even when you don't know where it's going. And sometimes that can lead us to the most unlikely places. But even hostile territory can be ripe with creativity and possibility, especially if you're talking about Moscow. Phillips was moving in uh, 2004 to 2005 to our new brand position, which was Sense and Simplicity. That meant that we were moving towards this new concept of way that we saw innovation being meaningful to people. And these were called simplicity events. So they were design-driven events where we would create basically scenarios. And we would simulate what we thought, for instance, healthcare would be in 10 years or cooking in the kitchen would be in 10 years. We would create these scenarios using actors. We would create movie sets. We would simulate the future. It's almost like creating a science fiction movie. We would enact these stories with um, thought leaders and our customers and you know, news media. So the management team said, look, Russia is really uh, you know, one of those markets we haven't actually uh, done a lot of this uh, future forecasting thinking on. Let's do Russia. And I was um, chosen to be responsible not only for the design direction and the design team, but for the event logistics, the event branding, the event messaging, the budget, everything. So I went to the uh, chief uh, marketing officer, Gert von Kaik, and I said, we have a problem. We, we, we don't really have a good location. Uh, we can't find anything uh, during that time we want to do it. I, I don't know what to do. And he looked at me and said, well, you know, what do you think we should do? What if, you know, what if we could get it on Red Square, you oh. know? <laughs> and it was a lark idea. It was not something solid. It was not something confirmed. It was not even, let's be honest, it's not even feasible in a way. That's the moment where he looked at me and he said, that's it. We're doing it on Red Square. And for the next 10 minutes, I kept saying, no, wait, Gert, this is, I'm not saying we can do that. I mean, that's how are we going to do that? That's, you know, I, I started backtracking on triggering him because I realized that, you know, he was onto it. And he said, no, we're, I believe you. We're going to do it. We're going to do Red Square. Let me know how it goes. I went blank. We are three weeks away from the opening. Mind you, we had invited, you know, 3,000 government officials and press and media and thought leaders and customers and, you know, influential people. We invited them, so it, it wouldn't be very good to not open. I didn't experience a moment of joy during it. Every moment I felt responsible for the building and the people. So it wasn't until I got home where everything was packed up, everything was done, everybody was out, that I actually could look back and think, wow, you know. After building at Red Square, Kurt went on to build himself a square that was also read by many of his current collaborators. Literally surrounding himself with ideas and writing, he created a framework for his creativity. 
Kurtz made it so that instead of standing outside the problem, he can boldly step into it, get lost, and not worry so much about where to find the doorknob. I'll let Kurt explain. This room that I'm in is my team room. I, we don't do offices. We have a team room. I designed it in such a way that all five walls, from the ceiling to the ground, are covered in whiteboards. So I can write on every square inch of our room here. The visualization of these constructs helps to start to see relationships to be able to form them into what they could be. And that's why this room is completely surrounded by sketches, drawings, lines, content, words. It's the inside of my brain is what you're sitting in right now, together with my team, of course. But uh, it's a utilitarian design. This, uh, the design organization has two sections to it. There's the front and the back. So we're gonna, we're gonna go through the back end. Now the back end design studio is, is a very creative place because in essence, it's very open planning. There are design tools and sketches and drawings everywhere. There are designers. And we also have a uh, 3D modeling room where we could build prototypes. Um, you know, if you have a concept around a, uh, you know, a product or an interface or a, a finish, you can actually go into here and you can actually make it and 3D print it and test it out. So you can make con uh, ideas concrete at the same time. But the majority of what we do here is around innovation thinking and around anywhere from user interface design to product design to innovation strategies to thinking about ecosystems. So we have a multidisciplinary teams here. We have sociologists, we have psychologists, we of course have user interfaces designers, we have product designers, we have people researchers. The Philips design philosophy is very human centric. And when I say that, you have to compare it to other organizations where design is more of a artistic, egoistic, dare I say? function. So we, we just came from the back studios and of course that's where, you know, it's very confidential information. It's product design, there's IPs and patents. But that's only 50% of this entire building. The other 50% of this is designed to be completely open, where we do collaboration, where we do workshops together with nurses, patients, uh, consumers, uh, thought leaders, governments, ministers of health. And the unique thing about this building is that we've designed this as a collaborative co-creation space, so this is open. And can I tell you an interesting story about design? If you walk into a boardroom, you know, a tr traditional meeting boardroom, business boardroom, and in the middle of it, you place a rubber duck. What's going to happen? It's going to spark creativity in the team. And I'll tell you why, because it's basically human nature. Our minds, our brains are designed in order to, at every moment, put things into context. The moment you put something that's unusual within a specific context, the brain has to start to think, how do I make sense out of this? And that making sense out of it starts to spark creativity. So that's the other reason why these rooms are designed in such a way to feel like they're, they're not normal. You know, you're walking into a place where you could draw on walls, where there's carpets, where there is, um, you know, couches, where there are unusual stools. There are many doorways into the imagination, and Kurt has tried to open them. From music, with its beautiful abstractions, to living in his cube of ideas, Kurt has tried to create an immersive world where creativity can capture him without distractions. His approach to work 
could seem out of the ordinary, but it's perfectly in line with his quest to catch that spark before someone else gets it. Now we're walking into our experience labs. This is where we really harness the idea of foresighting, future visioning. And we have our neonatal intensive care room. Now these rooms are simulation. They're like theater. They're like movie sets. Um, what I'm gonna, when I walk into here, you're gonna think that you're walking into a real neonate intensive care unit, but it's all fake. You have to picture that a neonate is a baby that is born prematurely. They have not developed enough within the, the, the womb in the normal process in terms of their skin viability, in terms of their sight, in terms of their breathing, in terms of their organs, in terms of their development. They're actually, a, a baby that's born premature is not set up to actually exist in the real world right. You know, they're not ready. They, they're not, shall we say, cooked enough. <laughs> you know, they're not ready. The problem with that is that these neonates will develop lifelong chronic conditions due to the fact that they were premature. And the incubator, which you probably recognize in your head, it's that glass structure connected to all kinds of machines, is, is, is one of the main developments that has enabled that. But we've said, okay, well, there's more around this than just simply that incubator and that technology. You have to imagine that there is the connection between people. There is the connection between the process. And so this room, although there are many, many, let's say, future thoughts and concepts that have in here, one of the main uh, points to illustrate around it is, it is simply light. A child is not used to be having light and noise in the womb. They are, but in, in their context. What we, but what happens is when you're in a normal hospital room, it's flooded with intense light for people to see. It's also very noisy, the machines, the people are going in and out. That's very disruptive to the baby because their job is actually to, to eat and to sleep because that's how their body developments. If they are interrupted by light constantly, their circadian rhythms are off. And if their circadian rhythms off, that means their body's not developing. So the concept around this room is that when you walk in, the lights are off automatically. It, it knows that there's a person coming in and it knows that the baby is in there. So it's keeping the light away from them. And then we've came up with this concept that if you open the incubator, then the lights will dim down, but you'll be able to see it. So it doesn't intrude upon the baby. Exploration requires a touch of daring and an open mind. Kurt has these in spades. He shows us that if you're excited about new ideas, you're open to new solutions. Kurt sees social interactions as opportunities to give rather than take. It's a game with only one rule, to keep playing. Changing the world is, is not an easy task, and it's not done with one product and one intervention and one thought. A societal change that I'm trying to support. And societal changes might take years, might take decades even. This is gonna sound very ideological and philosophical, but because man has consciousness and we have such a uh, empowerment over the earth, that comes with a, a great responsibility. If there is a way that I can support humanity to take a more holistic and sustainable movement towards the entire ecosystem, the earth, then I would feel validated. It sounds vague and abstract and maybe um, too ideological, but that's the essence of it. 
In this area, I'm focused in on healthcare because I think uh, healthcare has great impact, not only on, on individuals' lives, but also on the environment and also on the sustainability of the planet. <laughs> it's going to sound funny to say, but I don't look for an end goal because that would be uninteresting to me. If I ran out of nuts to crack, I'd be really bored. So I hope there is no end goal in the way. And that's the good thing about progress in technology. I think that there is, you know, no end to where we can go. If you're looking for a career of unexpected adventure and exploration, check out careers.phillips.com. If you haven't had the chance yet, go to your podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I am Jonathan Gruber. Thank you for listening. Next time on The Spark. Like I had a responsibility, another responsibility, that somehow my presence as Philips should not serve simply to enjoy the company I had, but rather to actually think about meaningful changes, thinking about making the world a better place. There are people, my family, my mom and my dad and everybody else, who uh, sees in me proof that your history is not a prescription of your future. You've been listening to The Spark, a podcast produced by the Phillips Recruitment Team, available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I tell you, can I, uh, Kurt, before we even get started, can I just tell you, after having listened to the pre-interview that I did with you, one of my colleagues gave this segment a title. Yeah. Dopamine fiend. <laughs> I like that. Innovation and you. Phillips.